I remember when I was younger, probably in grade five, um, a lot of times at lunchtime, we would actually exchange snacks. And it was actually a pretty nice experience because you would have some people that would bring snacks that my parents would refuse to pack for me. Like, I would get an opportunity to taste Dunkaroos. I don't know who's old enough to, uh, to remember Dunkaroos, but those were hot back in the day. Um, or anyone tasted Yop yogurt? Give me Yop, me mama. I remember that was something pretty interesting that I, I would taste. But there was one thing that I loved for years, and it was the Oreo cookie. Man, two amazing chocolate wafers with that white goodness in the middle. And I was thinking about that memory, and I was wondering, analyzing the theology of the Oreo cookie. (laughs) And I was thinking about that cookie, and that cookie doesn't really mean much if you take the vanilla good stuff out of the middle. For us as believers, we have a vanilla goodness. For us, that vanilla goodness is love. You see, for us, love is what holds everything together. It's the only thing that makes sense. Just like how two chocolate wafers would taste kind of dry and you probably need a ton of water after. (laughs) Being part of a church community without love is kind of like the same thing. Doesn't really make sense. And very oftentimes it leaves us bruised, battered, and with a bad experience or even a bad taste in our mouth. And we talked about it two weeks ago, one week before Easter, and we leaned in on 1 Corinthians 13. And often we talked about how in weddings it's the most quoted scripture, love is. But I think because we've siloed it to that, we don't see the fullness of what Paul was trying to get to us. If you go back to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he starts talking about spiritual gifts. But the accent point is at verse 31. And he says that after describing all manner of spiritual gifts, he says that he's going to show us a better way. And that's when he starts talking about having tongues of angels and mankind and being noisy as a symbol, even giving his body to be burnt. But if he does not have love, it means nothing. So in that context, it takes us to 1 Corinthians 14. When he begins talking about the contrast between prophecy and the gift of tongues, Pastor Matt next week is going to sort out what that's going to mean as it relates to each other, but I want to set the backdrop of 
how do we look at all of these gifts that we've been talking about, but we do what the Apostle Paul said, we follow this, we follow love, the superior way. So if you start at verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, pursue love yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, remember, we can't read this in a silo. We have to think about the context that came before. In, verse, in chapter 13, he's talking about love. Standing on the foundation of love, he wants us to pursue all spiritual gifts, every single one of them, But if there's one that you had to put at the very top, it's prophecy. Now you would think, why? Especially especially as us wonderful charismatics. Prophecy above tongues, why? It's because he's standing on the context of love being the superior way. Verse 2 For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God, for no one understands but his spirit he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to the people, speaks to people for edification, exhortation, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So, as wonderful as a gift as tongues are, and us as beautiful Pentecostals, we love using this gift, Paul is saying, remember the reason why you gather. Love. And the way he sees love played out, what it looks like for spiritual gifts is this word edification. Now, what does edification mean? What can help us is if we go back to the book of Romans. And if you start at verse 16, it says, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of, spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the one who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by other people. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. I wonder if in our context, Maybe this individualistic ideology has crept into church and made us forget that we're here for one another. Amen. Let's work it back. A lot of times, when we talk about the reason for the corporate gathering, why do we come to church? Why? Most times, some might say, is because I want to have an experience with God. Some might even say, oh, it's because I want to hear a word from God. And some might say, because my friends go there. But Paul, in his mind, planting these churches, 
his heart, the apostle's heart, Christ's heart, is that when we gather, it's so that we can serve others and ensure that we're all built up. Amen. Now, some of us may have lives that are difficult to wrap our lives that it's hard to wrap our minds around what it looks like to give 100% and not receive. I've given, is someone going to give to me? Now, I promise you, that's a valid question, especially if you've been hurt before, especially with church, because you know how we get sometimes. But I want to remind you that this is Christ's church, and he doesn't command us to do something that we are not capable of doing. And actually, the service of others, the building up of others, the edification of others benefits us as well. Why? Is because if every single person works for the edification of others, we all get built up. Amen. We all get built up. We all bring something to the table. Have you gone to a potluck where half the people don't bring anything? And when those people don't bring anything, what do you say? And, and those people have the nerve to take the most food. They're going back for fourths and fifths. And then you say, you know, you know the, the kind, gentle Canadian thing to say is, well, what did you bring? And they say, oh, no, nothing. I was just hungry. You know, I just wanted to come in and enjoy. And you're wondering, that's not very nice. That's not community. That's not the purpose of a potluck. The potluck is everybody brings and everybody shares and everybody gets to enjoy. Amen. You see, that is what church is. Amen. Now, for me, I know the prophetic comes up to rebuke, but I'll throw one out here. Think on this for a second. How long have you been coming to church taking and not giving? Forget about money. That's soft. That's easy. Forget about money. Serving, giving up of your time, not just in church, but serving others. If you know someone's going through a hard time, you don't just wait for the pastors to put together a plan. You just do something. You see, this community is best when everyone's giving. If we think our contribution is simply financial, we'll have a church that has money, but no one is fulfilled. This is why there's churches that are poor, churches that are struggling. They're under persecution, but they're thriving. You know why? Because they don't have money to give. They don't have food to give, but they know if I serve, if I give of my time, if I give of my gift, 
if I give of my attention, we're all in this together, don't you think everyone's needs would be met, including the giver? This is how we're supposed to think of things, folks. If we don't think of things in a communal mindset, and it's about giving and edifying, our church won't be loving. You see, love is something that you, you know that you felt. Some of us maybe have been damaged, and sometimes that good feeling of what love is can actually be strange. But I know that when it's done in the context of the faith fueled by the Holy Spirit, amazing things can happen. But it takes us to put away the spirit of fear, the spirit of jealousy, and the what-ifs, but to actually open up and give everything of ourselves. I would dare to say, if you're scared of getting hurt, I would actually point you back to the scripture when God says, vengeance is mine. So if someone hurts you, you actually don't need to feel bad about it. God will deal with them. Let's continue reading. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but rather that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I, be benef- how will I benefit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Sometimes... For me, as a teacher, when I come up to this stage, I have to think when I prep, how can I bring this across that it edifies you? Do you know why? Because I can preach in a way that I know edifies me. I can. There's so much things, and I know Pastor Matt can attest to this, there's lots left on the cutting room floor. Lots of study and, oh, this would be so good. Oh, this is, it blesses me in study. But half the stuff I read, I know if I bring it to you, it'd be like, okay, this is cool, but how does this apply? I have to think about edifying the church because this is what Paul calls me to. Now, I have to balance, of, balance both of how will they receive it, but I also want to make sure I'm not tickling your ears. Because you know, if I tickle your ears, and us as charismatics, oh, we love a good feeling. Because if I tickle your ears, eventually, those of you that are mature will think, I'm not actually getting anything. There's no substance to this sermon. I'm not being edified. I'm not being built up. But if I refuse to tickle yours, give you solid food, even at the expense of what 
makes me excited, guess how I get blessed? This is how myself and Pastor Matt get blessed. Seeing 20 people be baptized. Seeing people that I've heard have never lifted a finger to serve, never been in the prayer room, now serving, now in the prayer room. Why? Something is happening. There is a edification happening. There is the building up of the most holy faith. That's why we do what we do. This is why we leave things on the cutting room floor. It's for your edification. It would be so unloving if I came up here and gave you guys bad information. So unloving. If I came up here and just preached the stuff that I like to read, it would be so unloving. Wouldn't you think so? It would probably bore you guys, but... But outside of that, that's, that's why we're here. Don't be fooled just because we're on the stage and we get to talk for 30, 40, 50 minutes. We're here practicing this. We're building you up. We're using our gifts to edify you. Now I'm in exhorting you that every one of you that has gifts, you're to do the same thing for each other. What would our church look like if we operated in love, not just in the practicality of what we think love is, but biblical love? What if we're patient? Kind, not jealous, not bragging, not arrogant, not acting disgracefully, not seeking our own benefit, not easily provoked, doesn't keep an account of wrong suffered, not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth. What would a church look like? The closest thing I can say is the early church toppled Rome. Within 300 years, Christianity just couldn't be held under the thumb of the government anymore. Yeah, I hear you, God. So we want to complain so much of what's happening in the government right now. And the best thing that we can say is, let's just vote conservative. You don't think there's problems over there too? But what if the church actually held to a higher standard, a higher law, a higher magistrate, which is Jesus Christ? What if we actually obeyed his laws and actually operated by the laws of the kingdom of God? And our highest love is love, not how we define it, but how scripture defines it. You see, that's the love that actually changes the world. How do I know that? Because it's happened before. But if we hold on to this idea that we just need to vote conservative, hold on to conservative ideas, you know what's going to happen? We're just flip-flopping situations. Flip-flopping problems. Get rid of that idea. It's not just about voting conservative. It's about aligning our lives back to the standard of Scripture. This is what we need to do. History of our church has taught us if we obey this and we get rid of how we feel 
but we just stick to this. Amazing things can happen. We just need to stick to this. Stick to this, stick to this, stick to this. And yes, some of it might go against our charismatic ideas. Some of it might go against how we feel inside. Some of us are going to have to start loving on people that we don't like or we don't understand. Who cares? Jesus did the same thing for us. None of us deserve salvation, but he decided to give it anyway. So that is how we're supposed to frame it. For God so loved the world that he gave. We are supposed to give to each other, to the people outside. This is what Christianity is. It's not just a set of doctrines and a set of beliefs. Yes, we got to believe right, but the orthopraxy, the practice of those beliefs is love. That's what we're supposed to do. Christian maturity is biblical love. I'll say it one more time. Christian maturity. You want to know if you're growing in the Lord? You want a tangible, physical, measurable standard? Do you love more than yesterday? Again, if you're watching Netflix and seeing how they use love and applying it, it's going to lead you astray. If you're watching YouTube and measuring that's how love is, it's going to lead you astray. But if you open the Holy Scriptures handed down to us from the apostles and prophets and measure what love is according to that, I promise you, you are walking the narrow path, the path that leads to God. That's how we measure love. I'll say a few more things and then I'll be out your way. (laughs) Verse 7, yet even lifeless instruments, whether flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a a distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the trumpet produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle. There's a lot of people saying that they're Christians now. A lot of very different people holding on to unorthodox beliefs. So the word Christian right now is just so stretched wide, people don't even know what a Christian is anymore because we're just pointing at each other saying they're not a Christian and they're like, you're not a Christian and we're just like the Spider-Man meme, everyone's just pointing at each other. Who's the real one? But Jesus actually gave us the blueprint that separates us from everybody else. If you love each other, they will know. You love me and you follow me. That's our deciding factor, folks. Yes, doctrine has something to play, and I'm a teacher, so I love that stuff. But if the doctrine doesn't equal different behavior, which means you might believe the right stuff, but when we look at your life, when we look at what you watch, 
when we look at who you talk to, how you talk to them, does it reflect what you actually believe? And if it doesn't, why? We have to go back to the beliefs. Because if you believe something, you act in accordance with it. Right now, everyone is practicing a belief, right now. You know what that is? Chairs are meant to be sit on and it holds our weight. Everyone's practicing that. You know why? If we did not believe that chairs were meant to be sit on and they can't hold our weight, none of us would sit on a chair. Case in point. So if we believe the scriptures say a particular thing, that we're supposed to love each other, use our gifts for the edification of the church, our words are for edification, how we treat our spouses is for edification, how we, everything is for the building up of someone else. If that's our lives being poured out as an offering to God is just to give, that should be played out in every action that we take. And here's the best part. When we are not acting in accordance with it and we are corrected, how do you react? You see, that's the test. My football coach says, everybody looks good in air, but we know who the real men are when we put heads on. When you're corrected, you're not doing what scripture says. Do you get mad and say, I'm going to go find another church so they can just let you do your foolishness? Or do we submit and align our lives to the standard of scripture? If Jesus, when tempted, quoted the law, and submitted himself to the law while here, do you think you're better than Jesus? If Paul, that wrote most of the New Testament virtually, planted most of the churches, submitted himself to the apostle Peter, do you think you're better than Paul? My God, I hope the answer is no. We have to love, and when corrected, we submit to what the scripture says. Let's move on to gifts. So I'm going to talk about a few gifts here, and these are some of what you would call love gifts. So the first one here, listen, because it might be you is mercy. The gift of mercy is the capacity to feel and express unusual compassion, empathy, and sympathy for those in difficult or crisis situations and provide them with the necessary help to support and to see them through tough times. People with the gift of mercy and people who are hurting, struggling, broken, and overwhelmed find one another so that loneliness can be reduced. A hurt can be healed, and a person at the end of their rope gets a knot to hold on to. 
People with the gift of mercy need to be careful that they do not rush to conclusions. This is a warning here. By only hearing one side of the story from a hurting person. To accurately assess a pain or problem, both sides must be heard. Otherwise, the gift of mercy can result in taking up an offense for someone, which only makes matters worse. You see, we see this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus taught on mercy. He is repeatedly described as having compassion, which is the most frequent emotion mentioned of Jesus in the Bible. And it was so filled with mercy, he was so filled with mercy and that sometimes he would even weep. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus' mercy included an attentiveness to and concern for women, including the rejected Sumerian woman, the woman caught in adultery, a widow, a woman with a bleeding disorder, and a woman bent over for 18 years. In the ancient world, single men who were religious leaders did not have much interest in children, but children came to Jesus because he loved them. So do you have this gift, mercy? Do you find yourself being drawn to people who are needy, hurting, and sick, overwhelmed, disabled, or the elderly? Do you often think of ways to minister to those who are suffering and see people who are hurting but often overlooked? Do you sense a great deal of compassion for people uh, having personal, spiritual, relational, and emotional problems? Do a lot of people choose you as their wise counsel or confident to talk about, confident, confidant to talk to about issues in their life with you? Are you more of a feeler than other people you know are, and maybe they're more of a thinker? Do you find that you visit those who are suffering and it brings you joy to share with them rather than it depressing you? Do you find yourself responding to people more out of a compassion for what they are going through rather than a judgment for choices they made? Do you tend to see Jesus more as a priest who intercedes for people in love with patient compassion? If this describes you, and it's funny, I'm even thinking of some people, we know there's some people that have the gift of mercy for sure. If this aligns with you, you definitely have this gift. The next one is hospitality. We talked about it actually earlier as a discipline. And what you'll find is a lot of these disciplines are also attached to gifts. And a lot of these gifts we're supposed to practice. Someone actually asked about, does talking about gifts, thinking, well, if I don't have this gift, I don't need to practice it. That's actually wrong. Why? Because scripture commands us to do all these things. But some of us are gifted and have a greater measure to be able to do them at a higher capacity. Why? Here's an example. All of us are commanded to teach. Why? We're supposed to make disciples. That's what Jesus said. If you're going to make a disciple, you have to teach something. Do you guys believe that? I'll say it one more time. Jesus told us to make disciples, hence all of us are going to have to teach something. Amen? My God. Okay. So, Someone like myself and Pastor Matt, God has gifted us a higher capacity. It doesn't mean we're better than you. It just means we're a particular part of this body. That's what it means. There's a job that we take care of because we are built to be able to do that, like a hand. Try cooking with your mouth. 
try to read with your toenail. You're right, you can't. So it's just us playing different positions in a greater capacity. Everybody understand? Good. Hospitality. Hospitality is the ability to welcome strangers and entertain guests often in your home with great joy and kindness so that they become friends. And hospitality is supposed to include one's family, friends, Christians, and strangers who may not be Christians. Uh, these people tend to have an open home when, uh, sorry, these people tend to have an open home where others are welcome to visit. Uh, this gift is often combined with the abilities like interior designing, cooking, and event planning. People with this gift like to find new people, introduce people to each other, host events, throw parties, and create memorable occasions where people can make relationships and memories, which is a way of practicing the kingdom. So if you like to party, hey, <laughs> okay. So here's a warning. Importantly, hospitality is not to be extended to evil people or false teachers who Satan sends to harm your family and or church family. When sheep become wolves in the pen, the result is ministry. The result is not ministry, but misery. For this reason, hospitality also requires discernment. So we see hospitality in Jesus' ministry. Jesus spent time befriending social outcasts. He often ate with his disciples and welcomed us into the family of God, which includes an eternal home, an eternal party. Jesus was very close with two sisters and one brother named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He often stayed with them, ate at their home, and their hospitality to him resulted in a close relationship with them. So, do you have this gift? Do you enjoy having people in your home? Do you enjoy watching people meet and have fun at parties and events that you help plan and host? Is your home the kind of home that most people feel comfortable in and can drop by unannounced? Do you feel that something is really missing in your life when you cannot have guests into your home, host events, throw parties, plan vacations, and have fun on the calendar? When you think of your home, do you view it as from, from the perspective of the guests who will visit so that they will feel most welcomed and relaxed? Do you consider your home as a place of ministry for others and not just a retreat for you? Do you tend to enjoy going all out for parties, uh, sorry, birthdays, I guess parties are on the mind now, but birthdays, holidays, and other celebrations? When there is a room full of people having a good time, do you find joy in seeing their joy? That's you. You might have the gift of partying or hospitality. Administration. Administration is the God-given gift to give direction and make decisions on behalf of others as a result in efficient operation and accomplishment of goals. Administration includes the ability to organize people, things, information, finances, and etc. Often the mark of an administrator is the ability to accomplish things in a fitting and orderly way. Administrators often have a keen eye for detail they may also possess the natural talents of organization, observing, and using details, problem solving, and reasoning. Here's a warning, though. If someone with the gift, the gift of administration does not trust leadership, they can become very controlling and try to become the de facto leader through making and enforcing policy, controlling finances, demanding information, and creating cumbersome pro processes that provide them power. Uh-oh. Additionally, 
people with this gift can lose sight of the big picture and mission as they get overly focused on the small details. We see administration in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus organized his ministry by choosing his inner circle of three disciples, appointing 12, and sending out 72 two by two. So do you have this gift? When things are poorly organized, do you get frustrated and want to help fix things? Do you like to see resources best stewarded so that things like money, facilities, time, and energy are utilized for the best return on investment? Do you tend to have a risk radar that looks at the downside if things are not done well and seek to safeguard people and organizations by keeping them buttoned up? Are you attracted to opportunities where someone needs to bring order out of chaos? Do you naturally organize your life, schedule, finances, priorities, etc.? Do you become energized working on tasks, tasks and projects whereas that level of detail overwhelms or exhausts other people that you know? Do you like things like efficiency and promptness? Uh, do things like efficiency and promptness matter more to you than most people that you know? If that's the case, you might have the gift of administration. Helps and service. So the gift of helps and service is the ability to joyfully work alongside others and to help them complete the task God has given them. People with this gift generally prefer to work behind the scenes. They also tend to find joy in helping alleviate the burdens and responsibility of others. So here's some warnings, though. Sometimes irresponsible people will find people with this gift and dump their duties on them. We need to help people, but, sorry, we need to help people, but should not become codependent. I think someone already knows that's the gift. <laughs> so, we need to help, sorry, I'll, that was funny. We need to help people, but should not become codependent and be able to say no or have people make us do things for them that God wants them to do for themselves. Amen. We see this in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew 20, 28 says that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, did not, come to, not, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 to 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus also said, I am among you as one who serves. And he even washed the disciples' feet, which was the job of the lowest servant in the house. So do you have this gift? Do you enjoy helping others become more effective in their work? Do you prefer to labor behind the scenes? When someone is doing a job poorly, do you first, is your first instinct to help them succeed instead of criticizing their failure? Do you work in a supportive role? Do you prefer to work in a supportive role rather than a leadership capacity? When you hear of someone with needs, do you offer your services if possible? When someone asks for your help, do you have a difficulty saying no? Do you not necessarily care what role you play as long as you're on a healthy team 
and is doing good ministry. Do more lowly tasks that other people tend to delegate or avoid, not bother you, and you do them. Do you get asked to do a lot of things, join a lot of ministries, and help a lot of people? If that's you, which by the amends, I know there's some in the room, you probably have the gift of helps and service. My final thought, and we can go home. We have to remember the reason why we're here. The reason that we're here is not to have church. It's not to hear just a word of God for me or for you. It's not just to see friends. Coming to the corporate gathering is so that you can be of service. You can be an edification, a source of edification to the body. I want us to remember this. We want you to remember this because as our church continues to grow, we have to fight to shape the culture of what the Liberty Church is. Let me, let me, I heard this and I'm going to say, so this is not an original thought. Culture is always shaped, whether you decide to shape it or it shapes itself. That means the culture of your home, the culture of the church, the culture of the workplace, it automatically gets shaped. If you don't put rules in place, guess what? Rules will start popping up. It's true. Remain silent and you'll just start seeing little rules start popping up. If you do something, you get in trouble and all this kind of weird stuff. We can't afford to have that here. Do you know why? Once that kind of idea, that ideology starts shaping and we move away from the call of love, our church will stop growing, our church won't be very nice to be at, and we're gonna be here questioning what happened. We have to, as Paul puts it, we have to pursue love. That's the number one thing. Everything that myself and Pastor Matthew are gonna teach from this pulpit is to spurn you on to love. We have to do these things. This is why we're doing gifts because we want to make sure that you know your gift and you can serve and be of service to other people here and in the community. This is the only way we can bring revival. It's the only way. If you think us just packing out this room and singing is revival, you've missed it. You've absolutely missed it. You're on a whole different planet. Revival to the scriptures is a unified body in belief and practice, and we are loving each other in such a way, people are coming in here and saying, how is this happening? You don't think if we follow these scriptures, the mayor of this town is gonna be saying, how are you guys doing this? Doesn't matter what you think is happening at the schools, they're gonna start knocking on the door and say, there's something happening here because they're trying to manufacture a culture of love and they're failing. They're trying to manufacture a culture of acceptance and they're failing. We have the trump card. Amen. 
So in this moment, close your eyes, and I just want you to put yourself in a place and ask yourself this question. Have I been coming to church and looking to be served and not serving? First question, and the Holy Spirit will tell you the answer. And not just serving on a team, not just playing on praise and worship, not just doing soundboard or ushering. I'm talking about the attitude of not just doing a job, but service. Holy Spirit, in this moment, we pray that you convict us of the sin of being unloving. Convict us that we will change and will fight for a culture of love in our church. Fight for a culture of spiritual maturity. Not as the world defines it, but as you define it, Lord. Because that is the marker that no matter how crazy it gets out there, this is how people will know that we truly follow you. It's because we love the way you have prescribed it. So Father and Son, send the Spirit to rest on our hearts today, heavily, that as we grow, as we press into reforming our lives and conforming it to the standard of Scripture, that we won't forget the Scripture that talks about us loving each other. In ways that we've come to church looking for an experience, something that is self-serving, I pray that you convict us of it. I pray that if those uh, feelings and emotions are demonic, we speak against that now. We speak against the spirit of division in the name of Jesus, that we will be unified in doctrine and in practice, that we are not divided, that there is no one in here that we don't consider our sibling because we are attached to you. So we thank you, Father, for the mighty things that you have done. We love you and help us to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.